Hello, and welcome to Be an Instructional Design Rockstar with Blair Stamper. In today's episode, we have Kristen Newmayer. And Kristen has a really unique story because she actually went from academia as somebody who was actually a professor um, at an institution to more of a corporate role with instructional design. And Kristen describes herself as someone who has more than two decades of experience in instructional design, content development, and LMS administration. She's extremely passionate and committed to creating effective, engaging, and easy-to-use learning experiences based on user experience principles, universal accessibility, and mindful communication. I'm super excited for you to hear her story because she brings a really unique perspective to the instructional design field. I hope you enjoy. Kristen, thank you so much for hopping on to the podcast. I'm really excited just to kind of chat. Um, so I always start the podcast off with the age-old interview question of just tell me a little bit about yourself. Hi, Blair. Well, thanks for having me. I am an instructional designer based out of Valencia, Spain, working full-time with a company called Cornerstone On Demand, which is software as a service, learning, talent management. However, uh, my background is in academia. And I spent about two decades at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, first as a graduate student, then as a lecturer, and finally as a course coordinator before leaving for Spain, where my husband's from, with our three kids, and eventually freelancing and entering the field full time. I love just the multitude of perspectives you bring to the uh, field, like you were a student, and you taught, and now you're an instructional designer. I feel like that's such a powerful um, piece as an instructional designer. Um, so you kind of talked about this a little bit so, about um, your academic and scholarly background, but taking that a step further, something that I think a lot of IDs struggle with is this idea of going from higher ed to corporate or even to freelancing. So do you want to speak a little bit um, to that? Oh, absolutely. I bring up the graduate student and the teaching that I have in my background because it really informs my own point of view as an instructional designer. And especially in terms of who I'm designing for and who I want to support. So when I go forward, I always keep those very much in mind. When I was teaching, you know, I have the COVID-19 pandemic changed everything as everybody in education knows. And at the time I was not only teaching, I was also a course coordinator, which meant that I was mentoring graduate student teachers and we were teaching foreign language. This was the Spanish classes. And so communication was very important. And even though I had designed online courses, I had built online courses, I had led online courses, a full shift to online learning was completely a different experience. And for myself, I felt like a fish out of water. I was really surprised at just the, the transformation 
was huge. And I didn't feel like I could keep up with it. <laughs> Frankly, I, I went on LinkedIn to see if I could find other professors and instructors and Chronicle of Higher Ed and all of these publications and networks. And everybody was talking about how they were pivoting and flourishing. And it was this new opportunity. And I just wanted to crawl under my bed after every class and weep and not come out <laughs> because I just felt like I was losing it. So I jumped in, I actually got into instructional design because I wanted to learn more about how to support my students and support my grad student TAs through this change. And as I kept going through those courses and learning and tools and YouTube videos and you name it, because I was just desperate, I was so hungry. I started to see that, oh, there really is a space where somebody could step in and say, I'd like to support the teachers, the administrators, who are eventually assisting and supporting our students and our learners. And that's where I felt like my next calling was, was to take that leap into instructional design and say, I've been there, I've been through it, I speak your language, and I have the tools and resources that hopefully can make your life easier. And so that's what really led me into instructional design. That's awesome. And so it sounds like you started instructional design basically after the pandemic. Is that, did I hear that correctly? Yeah, full time. Although what I also started to learn as I was researching instructional design and taking courses and learning all these tools is that I, was doing a lot of instructional design already. I just didn't know there was a name for it. It was just the job, whether it was setting up a learning management system or building a course, uploading materials, even creating PowerPoints. All of this, are, are the, it's a skill set that I found really meshed well with this field. And it was kind of my favorite part of being a course coordinator. So it was really natural for me then to step in and say, actually, I'm not an academic who's becoming an instructional designer. Instructional designer is part of my portfolio. And that's what I want to pursue from here. Absolutely. I feel it makes me laugh every time I talk to an instructional designer, because I feel like most of us accidentally fell into the role. Like it, it just kind of like, like you said, those are the pieces that I love doing as a teacher or as an instructor. And then, hey, there's this field that I didn't even know existed. And then you kind of fell in love with that. So that's um, that's really awesome. Yeah, I did feel like, oh, wait, this is a thing, you know, and which was a bright side coming out of feeling so lost and so overwhelmed teaching during the pandemic. And I'm a woman. I, I had three kids in the public school system. And so it was me, it was my three kids. My husband was also a professor. So we were all at home, all struggling with this. <laughs> and really, I was just trying to keep my head above water. And then when I saw that this was an opening, that this was a real career potential, and I could just go out there and help whomever, and I didn't have to wait till fall semester, I could talk to someone tomorrow or set up something for someone across the world. That was just irresistible to me. Absolutely. Um, so you mentioned that you were a teacher before you kind of oversaw um, the graduate students. What how do you use those pieces in your prior careers um, 
to apply to the instructional design field? Well, the corporate world has really great names for all of these things that we do in academia, especially academic staff, where you're you're shouldering a lot of the teaching responsibilities, right? Um, and so that in the world outside of our much beloved ivory tower is called project management <laughs> and team leadership. And that also is very attractive to companies to say that I've worked with teams and I've set things up and I've tracked projects and I've looked at enrollments. You know, if I if you've ever looked at a course enrollment and decided to make any kind of shifts or adjustments, that's what's known as a needs assessment. So in some cases, if you're interested in instructional design, you're looking through these job applications and you're seeing these terms, instead of thinking of them as terms, think of them as activities. What does it mean to manage a project, to set deadlines, to delegate some of the responsibilities, to oversee that everybody is is got what they need and they're doing a good job and they're staying on time, then you have project management experience. And people will find that they actually are quite qualified. They've been doing this for a long time and you can come up with examples to use in interviews. So think about it that way. What are the things that you do, those tasks that you've been doing every day that may not have had the same level of appreciation in academia, but are really worthwhile and, the, and valuable outside of higher ed? Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, even in higher ed, but between higher ed and corporate, I feel like everything is named so differently, but it's the yeah. same steps. Like we're still doing the same, we're still doing the same job, the same thing. It's just named differently, or it might be used in a different way or, you know, that kind of thing. So that's a really good point. And I love that um, motivation for people to, to kind of just take a step back and really think about the experiences they have rather than, do I fit this little sentence that's listed on, you know, the job description? No, I see that a lot in posts in, in LinkedIn and other networking. There are a lot of opportunities. Also, there are agencies, there are educational publishers, there are instructional design consortium, where you have all of these instructional designers with different levels of background in academia serving higher ed clients. So you don't have to jump into, now I'm going to go work in a, in a finance firm on Wall Street as an instructional designer. There's a lot of need within higher ed as well. Absolutely. So can you speak a little bit to your experience of going from higher ed specific position to more of a corporate type position? Absolutely. Yes. Well, I had taken a leave of absence with my family to come and live here for a year in Spain while my husband was on sabbatical. And that was the plan. And then our children really loved it their grandparents are here, they get to play soccer all year round, and they didn't want to go back. And so we sat down and we talked about it as a family. And so I wound up actually letting go of my job at the UW-Madison. And then I had to kind of figure out real quick what I was going to do. And Drawing from those experiences and what I had gone through in the pandemic, I started to kind of look and see what was happening. And that change that impacted us so gravely during the COVID-19 pandemic 
opened up a lot of possibilities for remote work, for freelance work, for flexible schedules. And I thought that was really great, not just for me as an academic, but for me as a parent with young children and as a working parent, that was fabulous. So there really was a lot out there for me to reach. I began by educating myself more on instructional design engaging in online courses and seminars and workshops and started kind of sounding out different companies and different fields and different places. I had a lot of interviews, very informational, <laughs> but all interviews are informational. So even the interviews where halfway through we realized it wasn't going to be a good fit, I just learned so much. And I just started sending feelers out there. And after a while, people started contacting me and saying, oh, well, we have a short-term position here. Can you take a temp job there? Which is not necessarily attractive for a lot of people, especially coming out of a job where you have a lot of stability, as long as you're not an adjunct, in higher ed. Um, but gave me a chance to really dip my toe in the water and get experience in a lot of different companies on a short-term basis. So I would really recommend applying at freelance agencies and then just reaching out to companies that are maybe they're looking for somebody long term and you can only stay short term but you can say hey I can get you over this hump while you're waiting right until the right one comes along for you and for me I can support you in some things you can offer discounted rates if you want it first sometimes that helps too they'll bring you on if it's like a a month long or a two month long project and I got to work at a lot of great places through those uh, consulting firms and clients in the European Union, other schools and colleges. So I would really encourage you to do that too, to not think that now you have to get another full-time position right away. Short-term temp work, freelancing is a great way to build up a resume and a network. Absolutely. That's some great advice. Um, I love that your kids actually wanted to stay there. I feel like that's such a unique <laughs> position for for people to be in. I, when I heard that, I was like, really? That kind of was shocking. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, I mean, well, we, we were in Madison. It was snowy and it was cold and it was freezing and they got here and everybody's out all night and there's fiesta. And so, you know, I wasn't going to argue. My husband is had returned for this academic year according to a sabbatical contract. So this was another thing where freelancing and remote work and all of these flexible um, parameters, I should say, for job positions, the way that the employment world has changed. It's not like it was even in 2017. People are much more open to hiring internationally, remote, flex, um, different times. So it, it, there are a lot more possibilities too, as well, that there weren't there before. I agree. I, I think that there's much, like you said, much more flexibility in accepting remote work. I think a lot of companies have realized ID work can be done remotely and that the employees are the type of people, like, I feel like IDs, we're all go-getters, right? We're all problem solvers. Like you don't have to worry about whether or not we're going to get our work done. We're going to do it. <laughs> Yeah, I'm always got a, something on going on in the back of my head. We're all very engaged with other kinds of design. Other kinds of design thinking is really exciting for us. We're reading a lot. I love user experience literature and studies. I'm all about that too. 
user interface design is is a big, big field. There's a lot of room to be creative and to do what you want to do as well. Absolutely. Um, so what would you say is your greatest success so far in the field? I think my greatest success and what I would also share to fellow academics who are thinking about making this transition is to be able to allow academia to be an experience and something that you had rather than something that you are. It can be difficult sometimes to transition out of thinking of yourself as an academic. And I'll own this. It was difficult for me to stop thinking of myself as an academic. I was also an academic in a highly specialized field. I wrote my dissertation on medieval Spanish literature. <laughs> so this wasn't something that had a lot of broad appeal. You know, my family thought I was crazy. I, my job prospects were extremely limited. I had to explain myself at every cocktail party. So I, it was already a pretty narrow field and that requires a lot of determination and dedication and passion. And it's also an environment where people very easily begin to define themselves as their dissertation or as their, their field of interest or research. And to let go of that is really hard because there is so much life investment and financial investment and time investment that when it comes time to make a change, I had, and I see many of my fellow colleagues have a hard time letting go of the label of academic or the label of doctor or the label of MA or whatever the little initials after your name are. And we kind of drag that along with us like, yes, but I wrote a dissertation, so I'm great at research or yes, but I can understand this very deep philosophical context. So I can explain to you what's going on in your environment or, well, I know that you need a PowerPoint done, but I can do so much more for you because I have these advanced skills. And that's all us having a difficult time letting go of ourselves as an academic, as opposed to embracing this as an experience that we've had and a skill set that we've acquired that we're going to use as we move forward. And sometimes that means letting go. That was the hardest thing for me. And what I found, and then I was kind of thinking about it, that, well, this makes sense. Everything started to fall into place for me once I did let it go. Once I let go that I was going to get a research one position on a campus with orange and brown leaves in the fall, falling crisply on the quad as I, you know, walked along with my fellow scholars having, you know, these kind of dreams that we all go into graduate school with, which, you know, came true, right? I was often walking across the quad and fall with a bunch of papers. But the longer I held on to it, the more I felt it, I realized I was holding myself back. And that in physics, whether it's you're a chimpanzee or Batman or uh, an Olympic gymnast, you know, that the force forward doesn't come from reaching for the next vine or the next bar or the next ring. You get that force when you let go of what it is that you're holding on to. And that's when you swing into the next step. When I finally let go of saying, I love academia. I loved being an academic. It is a 
very enriching and powerful, informative experience that I had. But now it's time for me to move forward. And I let go is when all of the doors in instructional design opened up because I started defining myself as an instructional designer. I'm not a beginning instructional designer. I'm not a novice instructional designer. I'm not an academic who wants to be an instructional designer. I am. Because I say so, basically, because <laughs> I say so. And then people started to see me as an instructional designer. So that's a little long-winded, but that was just so important for me. And I, I see it and I hope it's helpful to other people who are trying to make this shift and thinking, what is what is it that I'm, I'm an academic? Why isn't anybody hiring me? I'm super qualified. I have a PhD. Well, breathe and take a minute and say, well, maybe you're not an academic. You've grown out of your academicness, right? You're not an academic now. Now you're an instructional designer. That for me was my biggest achievement, frankly, outside of projects, outside of clients, was making that internal shift. That's so powerful. I love your analogy about the chimpanzee or chim whatever. <laughs> you don't move until you've let go. And I think gotta let go. some, yeah. And I think so many of us, it just leads to these limiting beliefs of if I'm looking at myself as this is who I am, period, right. nothing else, right. you know, it's like, where's the growth from there? How do you define yourself in a new way? And that's a really scary thing. And I think that's part of where some of the limiting beliefs come from. But um, I think that that was a really powerful reminder. And I'm so glad that you were able to let go of that and just say, you know what, I'm an instructional designer. And now look at these doors that are opening for me. Yes, yes. And I really encourage people to do that because there is this sense of, are you giving up a dream? Are you thinking about doing an instructional design because that research one position didn't show up or tenure didn't come through or you're on an adjunct and you're juggling three jobs and you just can't do it anymore. And sometimes you think, well, I, this isn't working out, so I guess I'll do instructional design. And if you're still holding a torch for academia thinking, yeah, but if that call from one of the Ivies comes through, then you are limiting yourself. And it's okay to say, this was great. I loved it. I learned so much. I've acquired all of these instructional design skills, and now I get to go do them somewhere else. It can be very rewarding. Absolutely. Um, okay, so flip side of this now. Right. So we just talked about your greatest success. What has been your greatest challenge as an instructional designer? Oh, my goodness, my ego. <laughs> I'm making this all about, <laughs> I feel like this should be a different kind of podcast. <laughs> but it's really true. Because I was able to let go of, okay, I'm no longer going to define myself as an academic. But I had all these beliefs about myself, about how much I knew and how I had all of these studies and all of this research. And I wrote tests and I, I managed teams. And when I had to start learning the systems of my clients or meeting their requirements of what they wanted me to do for them or figuring out how to work an LMS that wasn't my institution's LMS. I was really just taken off guard. I, I I couldn't believe that I was struggling with this. And I had to, I looked at it from both ways. That was my struggle. Um, getting certified in these software programs was really hard, you know, and I'm like, it's multiple choice. I can do this. And I couldn't, I really struggled. 
and I'm still struggling in some ways. There are still some products that I'm I'm working on that I I still I'm passing the practice tests, but I have to hit my books. That was my biggest struggle, opening myself up to being a novice and learning. And the way that I got past a lot of my original pushback, which is, well, this test isn't very well done. Well, this test, this is, was to think, oh, look, I'm having an instructional design experience. You know, I'm a user, I'm a learner, and I'm struggling. And so this is what my stakeholders or my learners or my faculty staff or whoever my client is, is going through. And now I can have empathy and I can think about how could I make this an easier or more efficient process. And so that's how I'm getting through it. And also just saying, all right, Kristen, you know, you gave this up. You got to give it all up. You got to start from scratch. You got to earn your stripes. You know, you got to really do the work. So that's been my biggest struggle. And it implied failure. (laughs) A lot of cases where I'd have to come back to the team that just hired me or my client that I had a deadline for and say, I'm sorry, I I failed your product certification (laughs) exam. I'm going to need an extension. If you give that, if you just let that kind of go, then it, it does get easier too. But that has been a real learning curve for me. I love your positive spin on it though. Um, in terms of like looking at it as it's an experience, it's a, you know, and yes. this is how your own users that you're building for are going to experience. And I think something that's really unique about um, your story is you're not going through like a formal ID program certification, which I don't think is necessary anyways, but I think that's really unique because I think a lot of IDs struggle with well, I have to get the masters in learning design or the masters in instructional design. And I don't think that. And so I love that you're able to share that. Look, I'm learning it as I go and it's working out. <laughs> right, right. No, that's the academic speaking. I need these little initials at the end of my name in order to be qualified. It's true that little initials after your name can help you maybe on a first run if you want to do instructional design at a university level. But I got certified, you know, my little certification certificates and badges from Coursera, from LinkedIn, from Udemy, not necessarily because I wanted to have digital badges, although they look pretty and I'm I'm always putting them on my resume, but because I really wanted to learn what this field was all about. You do not need... Yeah. I don't want to say I don't want to put down programs because there are wonderful people and instructional designers who are putting these together to help us move forward as a field. And anybody who is enrolled in one of those is certainly going to have a head start <laughs> than those of us who have just kind of wandered in. But if you are really passionate about this field and you are nervous that maybe you're not qualified enough or you don't have enough or that you are not enough. That's, that's not the case. A lot of your clients are going to say, we want this PowerPoint done nice, (laughs) or we need you to upload this video to our LMS and you just hack your way through it. Absolutely. Um, So what are some things you wish you knew before you became an instructional designer? Hmm. I wish I knew how to network more. I wish I knew more about where to go to find a community of instructional designers 
if you're in higher ed, you're also familiar with this silo effect where the departments don't necessarily communicate with each other. The different floors in a building don't necessarily communicate with each other. Depending on the institutional or department culture, people with different titles might not be in communication with each other. And as part of one of the conditions that can create the self-identification with your field, you reach out horizontally, right? It's like, who else is at this conference studying this ancient Sanskrit manuscript <laughs> that I can bond with, right? Um, whereas instructional design, once you step outside of that environment, there's a lot of people doing a lot of different things. And I wasn't really sure how to find my people. Um, I didn't know who to talk to. I wasn't sure if there were conferences or what classes were solid and which weren't and how to learn computer programming. I really wish I had been more aware and had plugged in sooner to these communities of people who were interested in the things that I was interested in. It would have been a lot less lonely, frankly, at times, or nerve wracking to have someone say, no, it's cool. This is what we do. You know, come here, check this out, follow this YouTube channel, know this guy, visit this person's website. So that would have been really helpful. Yeah. Uh, what are some of the places that you go to now? Or like, where are some of the places that you go to now for that community? Because that's one thing is, I speak more of the higher ed side, obviously, but um. Yeah. With the higher ed IDs, there really isn't a, a big, besides like connecting on LinkedIn, like you said, going to conferences. And that's kind of one of the goals of this podcast is to be able to kind of start creating that community. But where are some places that you kind of go to meet those people? Well, now I just make it myself. I mean, I thought it was so great when I saw that you were on LinkedIn and saying, hey, I'm, I'm talking to instructional designers. So, yeah, I join groups on LinkedIn. Um, if there are people that are following others, um, uh, who are the names that are out there all the time? Tim Slade, um, Devin Peck, or is it Devlin? I'm sorry, Devlin. <laughs> I know that you're. it's DP. Um Christy Tucker, all of the, there's a lot of really fabulous people out there. I found them actually too, by trying to figure out how do I make a portfolio? And so there are, I just Googled it and, oh, if you want to make a great portfolio, check out these people and they refer to each other. And so I would just go kind of check them out and start following them. Um, I also started something in my new position where I was really interested in intersections of design, different kinds of design, product, learning, um, software. And so I just looked up everybody in the company with the word design in their profile. And I'm like, we're going to have a Slack channel and you're invited because you like design and I like design and I want to hear what you have to say. So you can create it yourself too. It, it you know, I, I felt like I was kind of going and knocking on doors and being like, hi, can I just come in? And <laughs> I, I'm, I'm an academic and I, I want to do what you see. This is like the cool kids table. Can I sit here and have lunch with you? But you can do it yourself, too. You know, if you find there, everybody is a person. Everybody is a human being. So if there was somebody I really liked or something that I really learned from, I commented, I reached out, I connected. Hey, I'm doing something else. Can you help me? Do you have any advice for me? most people are genuinely interested in supporting each other in this. I a hundred percent agree. I think 
that's one thing I love about instructional design. We will share whatever needs to be shared. We will support each other through it all. Like I, that's one thing I definitely love about the ID community. I do too. I really appreciate it also. And if a lot of instructional design people will want HTML, CSS, those basic coding skills, computer designers are also really open to sharing knowledge and and I came up with this code and I'll give it to you and you just cut and paste it and this kind of generosity and sharing I really dig it I really love it it reminds me of being a teaching assistant back in the day where we had mimeograph machines like that's how old I am and we would just pass them around the room you know you didn't have a digital library or a learning management system so everybody was just beg borrow steal five minutes before class and sometimes those are the ones that work the best because they're tried and they're tested. So I encourage anybody out there, just, you know, send Blair an email, send me an email, go to somebody's portfolio that you think is really cool and tell them that they love it. Absolutely. I agree. Um, so that actually, you kind of just gave it a little bit, but what's your best piece of advice for somebody who wants to become an instructional designer? Oh, I would say, well, the first thing would be to really sit with it because instructional design is also a field that has opened up hugely right after the pandemic with all this, this boom of online learning and really having people look at it and say, okay, well, we can't just have talking heads on Zoom all the time. What can we do with this? So it's really burgeoning and it's still growing at an incredibly fast rate, but it's not all there is. And sometimes people fall into instructional design because they feel that's the natural next step if they're not going to continue a career in academia. Like, well, I guess I could do instructional design. But if that's how you feel, it's okay to sit and think, what is it that I love about academia? What was it that brought me to this place? What is it that I'm going to treasure moving forward? For me, it was supporting my TAs. So it was instructional design for me was a natural because I could keep doing those kind of activities and supporting other teachers, other trainers. But if what you love is, you know, burrowing in a library for 10 hours on a winter Sunday or hanging out with your students at the union after a great class and just talking about life or um, meeting other people like scholars and hearing what they have to say, those are also all potential career paths, depending on what it is that you love to do. You can research, you can work for not profits, you could interview people on podcasts, right? I mean, there's just, there's so much. So that my, my biggest piece of advice would be first to reflect on what it is that you love about what you're doing and decide that that's the passion you're going to follow. And if it's instructional design, fabulous. But if it's not, that's okay, and it's not the end of the road. Try and figure out what it is that you want to do while you're making this transition that will want you to like get up in the morning and check your email and you know, think about it on the bus. That's where you want to go. It doesn't have to be instructional design, but if it is, you're in, you're in really great company. <laughs> We'd love to Absolutely. have you. Absolutely, <laughs> yes. No, I, I love that advice, especially because I think – Sometimes a lot of teachers, especially K-12, like I, all the empathy towards them and everything that they're going through. Love teachers. But I think sometimes they think, okay, I have to be an ID now. And it's like, no, there are other options out there, you know, and 
um, then they tend to get kind of discouraged when they're applying for all these positions and they're not getting them. And um, so I think that that's a really good piece of advice is just do that reflection and really think about what is it that you love? What is it that you're passionate about? Yes. And there'll be things that you have that maybe you don't even appreciate that another organization is desperate to find. Really, it, it can be something as simple as I really love connecting with young children, you know, that I love getting messy and finger painting. Well, if, what if is there an art for arts nonprofit? Is there a children's museum? Is there a, a craft space in your neighborhood where you would just be delighted and also they give you money? <laughs> it couldn't be better, right? I mean, that's it's just like the icing on the cake. Yes, and I love teachers and I really feel for what they've been through in the past couple of years and what they continue to go through. And there's a lot of pressure as well on teachers in terms of being able to make ends meet, feeling like they're valued, feeling like they are able to give their best selves at work. Well, that best self, you still have it. You know, don't don't hide it. And if you're just feeling like teaching isn't allowing you to give that gift to the world, then it's it's an inside out thing. You know, um, we need you. <laughs> We're here. There's so many places for you to go. Don't be discouraged. Don't define yourself as a teacher. Uh, although I still do. I still t- think of myself as I'm a teacher. Um, but it, that that passion won't leave. But there's a lot that you can do. And and it doesn't have to be instructional design if you just can't look at another worksheet. That's fine. (laughs) (laughs) I think going to your point, I think it's hard to once you're a teacher, it's hard to let go of let go. And once you're like a student for so long, it's hard to let go of that identity too. (laughs) Yes, yes. The, the, The student part of it. Well, and it's also really expensive in the United States. And it's a huge amount of time. And then people look back and think, well, it, did I waste all this time? Were my parents right? Should I have gotten like a normal job? And <laughs> here I'm leaving. There's a lot that's involved in this. And yes, it was worth it. And you are worth that investment. And it was worth that experience. And now you have the tools, whether it's instructional design, whether it's in nonprofits, whether you're doing project management, there is a space for you. And it has been worth it. And Absolutely. you can still, obviously, oh, well, you guys can't see because we're a podcast, but I <laughs> still have bookshelves all over my house. So you don't have to give it all up. You don't no, have to I go don't. through a major personality transfer. <laughs> That's okay. actually a perfect transition to what are you currently reading? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I read the same. Well, I'm kind of obsessive. So I still like to read like regular books. And you know what? Some days after so many years of research, all I want to do is read People magazine and see who's going to Trader Joe's in their sweats. Like I can't, I can't take it. So it's okay also to like tune out and pop culture it for a while. I love Don Norman and um, I love Steve Krug. These are UX authors. You can download a lot of their stuff for free and they are very human centered. Um, And they are talking about how if there's an issue in some kind of process or product, whether it's a door, whether it's an app, it's not a person problem. It's a design problem and figuring out how to make things easy and how to have technology and all of these tools help us connect with one another and do cool things and look at cool stuff 
in the easiest way possible. That is, that's what I'm, I'm reading right now. I really recommend it. It's wonderful for problem solving. I love that. Thank you for sharing. Um, but thank you so much for being on the podcast. This was an awesome conversation. I love all the advice um, you're giving and all of the just positivity that you just emulate in talking yes. to you. So I appreciate that. Oh, no problem. I'm so honored to be here. This is a, this is just a blast. I'm having a wonderful time. And I'm really pleased that I'm at a point now where I can turn back and say, hey, you can do it. It's possible. Because believe me, you know, I'm midlife, mid-career, three kids. I mean, and it did, I did it. And so I know you can do it too. And you'll love it. Yes, absolutely. One of the greatest takeaways from Kristen's interview was really just the excitement and positivity that she really brought to the conversation. I just loved how she, you know, had these ups and downs in her career. They moved across the world and she still kept this positive way of thinking that allowed her to then reach for the next thing and go towards the next thing and kind of take up small things to get the experience with instructional design to um, kind of get her foot in the door with that. And now actually be a successful instructional designer. So I really appreciated Kristen's story and I hope you did too. See you next time. Thanks for tuning in to Be an Instructional Design Rockstar with Blair Stamper. I hope you enjoyed getting to hear someone else's perspective in the online learning field. Hopefully their stories were enough to inspire you and show you that you're not alone as you're going through the process of creating a course, teaching a course, or even just learning as a student in an online course. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you next time.